0: Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ.
1: podcast, and you're listening to
2: Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Do you believe Len and Jeff and the Baseball and Barbecue podcast are getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues as part of the Believe Network. This is Doug Shiding of Rogue Cookers and Barbecue World Champion and guest host. And I can't wait to listen to the 40 million followers cheering for the upcoming show content. I believe. Do you? This is episode 128 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am Leonard Abraman, and I'm joined with... Whoa, my whoa, 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 whoa. You mean Hollywood! I am Hollywood. And I am joined by my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. And we welcome you to our little home away from home. Something we like to call our podcast, Baseball and Barbecue. How are you, Jeff? Hollywood. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. You know, we've got a great, great episode. We've got two great guests. And I've been very excited about the guests that we're going to have on. And it just shows you. Life is 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 sweet, and life can be bitter because the two guests that we have on are none other than Sandy Alderson, the president of the New York Mets, and Ray Sheehan, friend of the show, incredible pitmaster, owner of Barbecue Buddha sauces, and of course author of the new book Big Green Egg Basics from a Master barbecuer. But then, of course. We would be remiss and we would never do this to not talk about someone who we had on just recently. And unfortunately, we just lost. So, Jeff, why don't you tell us about the passing of Shirley Berkovich?
3: Yes, it was uh, sad. We interviewed Shirley just a few weeks ago, and we were very saddened to hear about her passing. She died on March 31st, 2022, at the age of 89. She was, I mean, we just spent a few minutes with her. And we can tell she's such a special person that she was her life, you know, had an amazing life. She was actually in the movie A League of Their Own and playing an older version of of herself. She was a real big advocate for for baseball for everybody, especially little girls. She was one of the founding directors of the International Women's Baseball Center. And she was very active in it and they they really plan to build a museum trying to raise funds. And unfortunately, you know, she never got to see that. But we hope that they will eventually open that and dedicate something to the memory of, of Shirley
2: Berkovich. Leonard? Jeff, you know, she was 89 years old when we had her and Maybelle Blair on. The 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 bond that they shared, the banter between the two. It was sweet. It was funny. And it was just It was heartwarming. I don't even know that our interview lasted an hour. We basically, you know, spent uh, an hour or so of this woman's life and with her. I can tell just from that hour that anyone that was associated with Shirley was better for it. I know we were. And we were so fortunate that we were able to speak to her. It will be something that I will always treasure. And I really hope that people will uh, listen to it. If they've heard it already, that they'll listen again, tell people about it and, and listen to that episode because it was just, just such a joy to, to listen to her, to Shirley Berkovich and Maybelle Blair. So I, I, I really, I hope that people do. Well said. We'll definitely be missed. And now. I'd like to talk about something that a lot of us like to do and that is sports wagering. You want to go to a good place for it and that if you're looking to wager head on over to betonline.ag on your desktop or your mobile device to sign up today. You'll receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code believe that's b l E-A-V, to get started. Bet online remains your number one spot for all updated odds and info, along with player props and new contests throughout the year. It's the best source for all your sporting wagering needs, including live betting and everyone's favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so join today. Learn why everyone is saying bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on sports. Bet online where the game starts. And now, Jeff, say hi to Sandy and get right into Sandy Alderson. This is a big coup for us. Sandy Alderson,
3: president of the New York
2: Mets. Now, let's just say that
3: we conducted this interview a few days before the end of the lockout. We just weren't allowed to ask him about any players, current players at that time.
2: So just wanted everybody to to realize that. And you know what, Jeff? I think that was actually better because it focused us. Because can you imagine if we also were talking about the current season with him? We would have had him on for another hour. Exactly. So so it was good. And now here's Sandy Olson. We often hear it said that sports is a business. And like any other business, to have a successful product, you need a qualified management team. Our guest has been helping to build winning teams since the early 80s. He has worked with the Oakland A's, San Diego Padres, and the New York Mets, as well as working in Major League Baseball's main office. As fans, we clamor for a winning team. And when we get one, we are grateful to the players and architects who gave us our dream. Our guest has given many fans many thrills and tonight we get to say thank you as well as pick the brain of one of baseball's top executives it is an honor and yes it is an absolute thrill to have sandy alderson join us on baseball and barbecue welcome sandy to baseball and barbecue
4: very happy to be here thank you for that introduction and looking forward to our conversation
2: Great. terrific so so sandy I'm known for asking the really tough questions, so I'm I'm just going to come out with what I know our listeners really want to ask you, and that is: when you have ribs, do you like them drier with sauce?
4: <laughs> oh, you've gotta have sauce! Absolutely, have to have sauce. And the question is, what type of sauce? And I'm not partial to the Carolina barbecue sauce, but something a little uh, heavier, a little brawnier than that.
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that you know, i got the tough ones out of the way, Len.
2: <laughs> exactly. Jeff, go ahead. You, you, now, now you ask the softball ones. Okay.
3: Th- thanks, Len. And Sandy, again, thank you for joining us. When fans think of being a general manager, they only think about building a roster and making trades, but it's much more than that. Can you please tell us what goes into being a major league general manager?
4: Yeah, there are, are a number of, of components. Course, you have the major league team and building the roster and making trades and signing free agents. That typically happens once or twice a year, uh, primarily in the offseason and then at the trade deadline. So there's a lot of time in between that other things are going on. Uh, One is scouting, have the amateur draft every year in uh, June or July. There's a lot that goes into that, and the general manager has to stay on top of it. Now, coincidentally, I've had conversations over the last couple of days with uh, Billy Epler and some of the scouting staff uh, as we prepare for, you know, this upcoming draft. And uh, one thing I learned a long time ago as a general manager was to get out of the way. I've never been in that, never purported to be a, a, a uh, scouting uh, expert found along the way that if I, you know, intrude into that process, Sometimes terrible things can happen. So, I have a lot of respect for the scouting operation. I have respect for all of those that put time into scouting, but I try to oversee it without intruding on it. Player development is a huge thing, too. You know, we talk about player development. Every team wants to be successful through player development. The real question is how do you do that? And how do you do it over a period of time? You have to be organized you have to have systems, you have to have consistency. And all of that has to do with execution. So having great ideas like analytics, you know, we started using them in Oakland in the mid 80s. It's great to have good ideas. But it's almost more important to execute well on ideas that everyone else knows, but can't somehow implement. So being a general manager, it's, it's like being a director of a variety of different things. Um, What I enjoy is more than anything else is not just the variety of activity, but also the uh, diversity of uh, the people involved. And uh, I was in the Marine Corps before I got uh, into professional baseball or became a lawyer. And I think that's where I got my appreciation for the man in the street, the squad leader, the fire team leader, the Lance Corporal, Tremendous amount of respect for people who do that work and tremendous amount of enjoyment from their friendship.
2: First of all, yes, thank you very much for your service. Yep. And not only that, I mean, you so you come from, you know, you you come from a military family. Your your yep. dad having served. I, I was amazed to to read that your dad was in World War II, Korea, and the Vietnam War.
4: Yes. Yeah. Very young man in World War II and was recalled for Korea and then became a career uh, Air Force pilot and and ended up in Vietnam toward the end of his career.
2: And I and I saw, you know, I saw that you graduated in 1969 from Dartmouth. And of course, the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, 69, you know, the, the Miracle Mets. And but I, I somehow think that you did not. I, I mean, I'm going to ask you, but. I think that in 69, your mind was not really on the Miracle Mets as you were, as your dad was in Vietnam and you were, you went to Vietnam. And so, I mean, what was 1969 like? Did you even follow the Mets at all during that time?
4: You know, that was a unique period of time for the country, but for me personally. So, you know, for the last semester of college, you know, you're, you're wondering what you're going to be, you know, you know, I knew that I was going to be going into the Marine Corps, but it was the last semester. I still applied to law schools and, you know, was involved in a lot of things and honestly can't remember ever really following baseball during that spring. Uh, I ended up in Quantico, uh, which is where Marines train and was there in October when the Mets were playing in the playoffs. And I can remember we were out on a field exercise and I was acting as a radio man. And I had the radio. It was a PRC 25 is what it was called. And the interesting thing was that on that radio, you could pick up the audio from a national television broadcast. And so I had the radio and we were listening to the Mets and I believe the Braves who they beat in the uh, LCS that year so. My only real connection with the 69 Mets was, you know, sitting behind a rock and listening to them in the fourth inning while I was on a field exercise in Virginia. (laughs) But it was memorable.
3: So, uh, Sandy, you went to Harvard, you got your your, uh, law degree, you worked for a law firm where you left to become the, worked for the Oakland Athletics. Yes. And you became the GM of the great Oakland Athletics from what, 83 to 97, which included three straight World Series from 88 to 90. Winning the 89 World Series was the victory was tempered by the earthquake. Any recollections you can share with our audience about that that series?
4: Sure. Well, so we went into that series playing the San Francisco Giants, and of course we were across the bay. So this was sort of a life or death experience. We went up two games to none. In Oakland, and then moved to San Francisco for games three, four, and five. During the off day uh, between games two and three, our starting pitcher for game three, Bob Welch, who had had a a great year for us, we had acquired from the Dodgers uh, in, I think at the end of 87, perhaps. In any event, he pulled a hamstring. And so we didn't know whether he was going to get to pitch or not. So the day of game three, we're concerned about Bob Welch. Um, not sure he's going to be able to pitch. Uh, he's right-handed, and we were going to use a lefty if uh, he couldn't pitch. Well before the game was to start, we went to the umpires and said, look, I know the the you know the rosters are such that I mean the, the lineups are basically set. Everybody uh, knows that we're pitching a right-hander, but he might not be able to go and pitch a left-hander. So we just want to make sure you're aware of that, so you can make sure the Giants are aware of it. And I look back on that and I think <laughs> that was a sort of an extraordinary expression of sportsmanship, which doesn't exist today. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in any event, so Game Three is about to start, and I'm up in a in a suite, if you could call it that. It was uh, slung beneath the uh, upper deck way down in the left field corner and the, the box started to shake. And I had my wife and son were in the, in the box. And at first we thought that it was fans in the stands that were just, you know, stomping their feet and just making a lot of commotion. And then it kept, kept on. And it continued for several seconds. And at that time we all moved to the uh, archway of the door because, you know, when you're in, a, in an earthquake, they typically tell you, if you can't go anyplace else, get in the, you know, a door frame, an archway, and hope that that has some protection. And I had gone through several earthquake experiences before this one. And the interesting thing about earthquakes, as you can imagine, is that, you know, you're never in the same place when one hits. And so the experience is very different. If you're in a car you know, you, and, you, and you feel it, it's very different than being in a high rise or being in a baseball stadium. And so this happened. There wasn't any visible damage. And so everybody, once it was over, was, you know, high-fiving, and clapping and this and that. And then several minutes later, images from uh, elsewhere in the Bay Area began to um, emerge. And in the meantime, we didn't have any lights at the stadium. And so one of my thoughts before I saw these images, just as we were kind of in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, maybe Bob Welsh will get another day rest uh, and can pitch. Um, so, I mean, everything else is sort of history. You know, the game was canceled and we picked up the series, I don't know, 10 days or so later, I forget exactly what it was, we even had, Debates or conversations as to whether or not they should just cancel the rest of the World Series and naturally award us the trophy after right. two games. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was a it was a surreal experience. We waited a long time, and finally, we flew to Phoenix to play a practice game just because we were getting stir crazy and and felt that our obligation was to the city of Oakland and the fans you know, even in the aftermath of this earthquake to make sure that we did everything we could to win. Mm -hmm. Because while the earthquake was history, so would the World Series championship be. And so we flew to Phoenix. We played an exhibition game with our AAA players who were in uh, extended spring. We had like 10,000 people show up to watch. And then, of course, we came back and won the last two games. And the interesting thing about the series ultimately is that we only used two starting pitchers. Right, right. Dave Stewart and uh, Mike Moore—they both pitched uh, twice, and so that was it.
3: That's interesting going to Phoenix and uh, in between games, you have fans watching uh, a team in the World Series not playing. World <laughs> World Series. Not, was not happy
4: <laughs> by any means. Right, and uh, finally we said oh, we're out of here. So <laughs> that was an interesting side sidebar yeah. uh, to the whole situation.
2: Sandy, we we always hear, they they always talk about small market teams and large market teams, right? Now, you've been with both types. Mm -hmm. When, When you're part of each team, do you really feel the difference in how things are done?
4: I think the short answer is yes. And I'll just describe it this way. When you're a small market club, you have fewer options available. So for example, you know, would a small market club sign a pitcher for $35 million a year for two or three years? The answer is probably no. The interesting thing, though, is once you take those options off the table, it sharpens your focus on all the other options that are available. And so while there's no temptation to, you know, to go crazy, as maybe a, a large market might. There are still options available in order to, you know, build a good team, and I think you know the Oakland's and the the Tampa Bays of the world over the last you know five or ten years have proven that you can be good and be small. It's just that you have to do certain things well, given you know the limitations that may exist on a payroll. The payroll is is really not definitive in terms of winning or losing. It, it may. Mm-hmm. Change the probabilities so that a big market team with a bigger payroll maybe has a 60% chance of getting into the playoffs, and a smaller market team has maybe 30 or 40. But it's still not, you know, a complete obstacle. And so, yes, that things things are done a little bit differently, in part because not all the options, you know, the sources of talent and so forth are available. In most cases to a small market club not in most cases but in some cases you know that might be available to a to a bigger market club but those are temptations too you can screw that up it's not like <laughs> you know, it's not like uh spending money big money is going to guarantee anything right even exactly. the probabilities. that that can be screwed up just as easily as as uh you know other things so i do believe that good management is important regardless of market size And where big markets have an advantage is when they have the resources of that market and they have good management.
2: What, What I'll even say, Sandy, is that I think the advantage as far as a fan with a small market team is that if you get these players, when they, you know, when they're first coming up and they're with the team and they develop and as the team gets better and and you're not bringing in, you're not trading them off and bringing in the high price Allen or whatever. You get the chance to actually grow with these homegrown.
4: Yeah, players. Well, I agree an- with. That. But I also think that you know I think that the average person, and I would include myself in this category, we like two things: we like continuity, and we like change. So as applied to a 25-man roster, yes, we want our homegrown players. We, want, we, we love the continuity from year to year of having those players and getting to know those players and follow them and believe in them. But like most of us in society, we also like a little bit of change. You know, we like what's new. What's new this year? You know, uh, that's why we have a new automobile model every year. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, don't sell, we don't sell 2018 Ford's in 2022. So I think, you know, there's, there's a desire for continuity and, uh, among the, the core players. But at the same time, I think, I think uh, fans are always looking for something new and something that can bring a little bit of excitement and surprise to the game. And look, it's entertainment. You know, if you go to a concert, and I don't know, I was, I was thinking this the other day, you go to a, like a Brooks and Dunn concert, you really want to listen to the new stuff? Well, not for a whole concert. No, I want to hear all the. I want to hear all the great songs that they, uh, you know, the number one hits and so forth. But you know, a little bit, of, a little bit of something new. See, you know, to get a sense of what they've been doing recently. Yeah, definitely. I want want that to be a part. Of it.
3: Sure, sprinkle in a little new stuff. So after Oakland, you went to the office of commissioner. What were your responsibilities in the MLB office? I, I tend to remember you had something to do with the Dominican Republic.
4: Well, I, uh, so I was responsible for baseball, all sort of baseball operations. So that would include, you know, the game on the field, overseeing the rules, umpires, I supervised the umpires. Uh, I was involved in international baseball. So I was involved with the Olympic teams and some of the overseas competition with USA Baseball. You know, it was a pretty complete involvement in baseball operations internationally as well. I got involved directly with the Dominican Republic and the Caribbean in actually after I left baseball, Major League Baseball, went to San Diego and then left San Diego. And for about a year, I was involved in the Dominican Republic trying to address some of the issues that we faced there.
3: Okay, as a general manager, though, what are some of the criteria that goes into hiring managers for teams? And I ask you this because a lot, I think you got a lot of flack for hiring Terry Collins when the hire was made. However, my perception is that the fans came to appreciate Terry more and more as the season went on. So he was a, you know, a very good manager, actually the longest tenure manager for the MIPS. I Personally, I got to meet him uh, in November at the, at the fantasy camp. So uh, he was a, a very good hire in the end. So what, what are the criteria that goes into the uh, hiring for a manager?
4: Well, I, you know, number one criteria is leadership. And so what is leadership? Well, it's different in different situations. Some individuals are cut out for certain leadership situations and not others. Like when I was in the Marine Corps, okay, somebody in a foxhole, you know, really trusts and is good at what he does. Uh, does, that mean, does that translate to making plans at headquarters, not necessarily. I mean, it's, you know, there are two different jobs and now there's some people who are good at it regardless of the, of the situation or circumstance. And those are people whose strength is people, I think. And if one has the ability to connect with people, empathize, that goes a long way, but leadership is, is important. And leadership in this context is figuring out a way to keep 25 players reasonably motivated for 162 games. It's a day in day out proposition. And so that requires a very different leadership. I think than let's say a football coach who has to play 16 games or so, uh, you know, or 17 at the professional level once a week. It's a different, just a different environment and different players too. A manager has to be professionally competent. So, You know, a player, a manager's credibility, I think, over time is predicated on two things, and that is professional competence. You know, you got to be able to make decisions and do that, you know, wisely in ways that players and fans understand and appreciate. And you have to have personal qualities that allow you to, you know, reliably manage 25 human beings over you know, uh, an eight-month period, and those are two qualities. First manager I ever had in Oakland, and I didn't hire him, but I kind of parachuted in. And he was there was Billy Parton, who's very well known within baseball annals, but tremendous manager. But as a person, just could not sustain relationships, which is why he got fired. You know, periodically, because while he was good in the trenches, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't as good in conversations or uh, relationships with his players and basically burned everything out uh, over a period of time.
2: Yeah, Sandy, you were, of course, you were in Oakland, you were in San Diego. And of course, there's always, you always hear people that some people can make it in New York and others can't, and some don't want to come to New York. I somehow don't think that you ever had any hesitation about coming to New York (laughs) as You know, I mean, somebody who who was in the military probably coming to New York was probably not that big a deal. But was there ever any hesitation to to come here and to to become the GM of the Mets?
4: Uh, The short answer is no. Now, I had the benefit of living in New York for about six and a half years while I was with Major League Baseball. So it wasn't as if the, the city was completely foreign to me. But when I came in 2000, late 2010, no, I was very excited for the opportunity. And one of the reasons I took the job is because my daughter lives so close to the city. She lives in New Jersey. Another reason I took it is because my father really was excited about me being with the team again. So, you know, there were some non-professional reasons for wanting to do it, but no, it never struck me that, you know, New York was going to be a bigger challenge than some of the other places I had been. You know, what's interesting is, so I was in San Diego and, and you know, the the media market there is pretty small, but if you tee people off in a small media market, they're all against, I mean, there's no, there's no refuge, at least in New York with, you know, as many uh, outlets as there there are, you know, there's an opportunity to carve out, you know, a little bit of a toehold. Not everybody can uh, turn against you at one time or it's more difficult. So, Actually, learned a lot in San Diego about how I was going to approach New York, which was, you know, to try and be as straightforward and authentic, I guess, uh, honest as possible, and treat everybody in the media certainly about the same. Try not to play favorites.
3: And ab- obviously, you had the master of the PR person in in your corner there with, with Jay
2: Horowitz.
4: Yeah, Jay, Jay, actually, yeah, keep me on keep me on the straight and narrow, absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah, we we had Jay on. What a what a great guy! Yeah, what a, really just a great guy. Sandy, when you started with the with the A's, you had an emphasis. You you, you put an emphasis on certain stats such as on base percentage mm-hmm. more than batting average. Okay. Yeah. Baseball has certainly changed since then. Is there any possibility that that we could go back? you know, that we'll ever go back to, you know, we'll, we'll forget about launch angles and, you know, all these home runs and we'll go back to the way it was back in the eighties.
4: You know, I think the answer to that is probably no, but there is one way to, to think about change in the game. So, you know, the way I got involved with statistics was by happenstance. So I had I was in charge of the baseball operation in Oakland. I had no clue about how to evaluate players. I I hadn't been a scout, hadn't been in player development, hadn't really played that much, played a little bit in college. And I was driving to work and listening to public radio, and somebody came on and started talking about, you know, these sabermetrics and data interpretation, which sounded really interesting to me and also sounded fairly objective. In the sense that this, this could either be proven or not proven through like a regression analysis or some other calculation. So we brought we brought somebody in. We didn't announce it. We kept it quiet for years that we had this person. There wasn't as much data then as there is today. I mean, there was hardly any data in those days. But the concept was sound and we used what data we had. And so now in the ensuing what is it now? Uh, Thirty-five years. The game has evolved to the point where data is king, and not only is there a vast amount of data, which is available to everybody, so it's not as if some people have it and some don't. Every club has it, even you know the general public has it. So everybody has the data. Then it becomes how the how that data is interpreted. And over time, the interpretations of the data have become very refined to the point where everybody basically interprets it the same way. And so we have distilled the game down to, uh, you know, an analytical summary. And that's why we don't have any strategic differences among clubs. Everybody does the same thing. Get on base and hit the ball out of the park. That's, you know, from an offensive standpoint, that's what you try to do. So that's where we are. That's, a, that's, that's kind of a, an efficient distillation of all of this data through the years. And the only way that that's going to change, because you're never going to take data interpretation out of the game. It's there. It's available. You know, There's no way that you can avoid it. What you really have to do then is to accept the fact that this, these analyses will continue. But in order to reset the analysis, you got to change the rules. So, you know, you have to create a situation where the stolen base is as valuable as a double in the gap. I mean, that's simplistic, but the point is that until you change the probabilities of one strategy versus another, and the only way you do that is by changing the rules, then you're going to end up with what we have because everybody interprets the data the same way. Everybody, Tries to accomplish the same thing, and we've kind of lost the uh, kind of the intellectual component of the game and the anticipation of what a manager will do. And really, the only suspense that we have left is whether or not players execute. We all know what they're going to do. Can they execute? Well, so we've eliminated we, we've we've eliminated one one level of interest, which is what the heck are they going to do in this situation? What's the manager thinking? we've eliminated that because we all know what he's thinking. So to me, the way you address the, 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 you know, the, the data revolution is by changing the rules and changing them in ways that make you know, more than one strategy uh, acceptable, that you get back to, as I said, the kinds of things that people enjoy that are now missing from the game. And one of them is stolen bases, ground ball singles through the right side. You know, there are certain things that fans say, gee, these are really, really exciting. Stolen bases, triples, home runs. And, you know, I, I don't think you want to diminish the number of home runs too much because people love home runs. But they also love triples. They love stolen bases. And they like anything. It's like a three-point three, three point shot in basketball. It's the anticipation. When the shot leaves that hand, there's plenty of time to think, is it going to go in or go out or not? When a guy dunks a ball in basketball, there's no time to reflect. (laughs) Is it gonna, you know, is it going in or not going in? No. But the three-point shot, it's a whole different, you know, kind of emotional, intellectual dimension. That's the same thing with a triple. You get to watch that for an extended period of time. Is he gonna get, you know, it's it's that long developing play. You know, I just I just think that you know, we need to take a hard look at the rules and make sure that. What we're doing is exciting and constitutes entertainment for the fans and makes them want to belong in, in, in a more, you know, a more kind of exciting environment.
3: Wow. You, you know, Sandy, you just changed my mind a little bit. That, that's a great answer. You know, changing the rules. because I kept thinking and I think a lot of fans are thinking just adjust to the shift. I mean, Alex, today we, it, it's in the positioning on the field. Why don't teams make a conscious effort to adjust to combat the ship? Put, like yeah. you said, putting a bunt down to, to the right side. You Nobody's know, there. You get on base. You want to get on base, but it, it's that's a very interesting way you put it, I, and I appreciate that. I, I've never, so never thought of it teams, that
4: way. Most teams on defense appreciate a player trying to go to left field against the ship. Why? Because at best, it's a single. And so the other thing is that if you do the analysis, what it tells you is you're better off trying to hit the ball hard, you know, pull the ball hard into the shift and try to elevate over the shift, which is why we get these launch angles. So, you know, the the response to the shift is not just going the other way it's hitting over the shift. So we've seen fly balls. Players are trying to hit fly balls with more frequency, but if, if the, if the analysis said to clubs, yeah, going the other way is a good thing because it, it enhances our probability of scoring runs or, or enhances our probability of winning the game. They would, clubs would be teaching it. T- clubs would be utilizing it. the reason they're not is not because the players are incapable, but in a lot of cases they are, but it, even if you're successful, it's not the best strategy based on you know, the
2: calculations and the probabilities and all this analytical stuff. Hmm. Sandy, I want to, well, not change course, but I want to ask you something. I I saw a very interesting article where somebody interviewed you and and they, and they were asking you about a typical day and you were talking about different times of year. The typical day is different. Yeah. And as president, you were talking about one of the things was you uh were had to deal with ticket prices uh, setting ticket prices things like that yep now as fans when we we want our teams to make these big signings and and get yep. these players and some of these players you know are are very expensive and then of course we we all realize that well, how is that going to be afforded? Well, ticket prices are going to rise and things like that. And then they talk about, well, the average guy is going to be priced out of the game and not be able to go. How much consideration do you, do you have to give to that when you set the prices, when you sign the players? I mean, it's, it, how much do you really have to give thought to that?
4: Uh, quite a bit, actually. Pricing for tickets, for food and beverage, uh, those are all things that we take into account and we recognize that you know for some fans those prices can be a barrier that's why when we say say we raise ticket prices we say it's you know they've been raised on an average of 5% typically those increases are different among different locations and quality of seats so you can imagine that the seats behind, immediately behind home plate are probably going to go up more than seats you know, out in uh, the upper deck in left center field, both in terms of absolute dollars and percentages. Why? Because the demand is there for those high demand seats, whereas, you know, less so uh, in in other places. And the other thing we, we have to do is make sure that every sort of demographic of our fan base is served. And so we have lots of, you know, we have lots of different ticket programs that, account for people who want to bring their families who can't necessarily afford, you know, the higher price tickets. We understand we have to be competitive. It's a, it's for the entertainment dollar. And so what's relevant to that? Well, you know, what the Islanders are charging or what movie theaters are charging for a first run movie or what it costs per month for Netflix. You know, those are all things that, that factor in inflation, et cetera, et cetera. You know we have to we have to think about all of those things. But do prices go up? Yes, not aggressively uh, in our history, with the Mets. but realistically, you know we have to run a business. and the reason that I'm involved in all of those things is in part because I enjoy being involved in those things. They're, those are different considerations than you know, baseball decisions. And I learned something because it's not not a place where I've spent my entire career. Walt Whitman had a quote which was made famous by a current Apple TV series Be curious, not judgmental. And curiosity is a big watchword for me. Because if you're not curious, you're not really going to continue to learn over time. You're probably not that interested in other people either if you're not curious. So it's not just about subject matter, it's about individuals, about a lot of different things. But anyway, Curiosity has always kind of driven me to the point where I, I'm not sure I really had a career plan. It was really just curiosity that and a willingness to try things that got me from one place to another.
2: I think that's how we are a little with this podcast is that, you know, very curious and and, and we love to talk to different people, whether it's baseball and barbecue. And that definitely drives us as well. Sandy, one other thing, you know, it's interesting, of course, Billy Bean succeeded you as, you know, general manager of the Oakland A's and Billy Bean's father was a naval officer. So he also had, you know, he was, quote, military, uh, what do you call it, Army brat or whatever, uh, you know, the the expression. Did you guys talk about that often? The fact that you came from, you know, similar backgrounds?
4: Yeah, a little bit. Billy grew up in San Diego, which where his father, I think, uh, retired uh, or got out of the Navy. So I don't think Billy was actually part of a military family that moved from place to place. I think that was, you know, his dad's origin story. But I don't think Billy really experienced being a military brat. I've moved a lot of different places. I went to three high schools, um, lots, lots of different schools. And the good thing about it is, is adaptability. I think that, you know, having to move every three or four years maximum developed an adaptability. in those of us who went through it, there were a lot of downsides to it. And, you know, you don't have lifelong friends, or very few. You have a set of friends for three or four years and they become history and you get a new set of friends <laughs> and that, you know, that process goes on uh, several times over, but, yeah, so we did have that in common. And I think Billy respected his father and his, his, uh, his service. And I'm sure that some of what his father experienced uh, influenced how he parented as well. So I actually saw Billy play when he was high school. In, uh, uh, no, I didn't see him when he played in high school. But I went to his old high school and watched another player, Eric Chavez, play. Eric broke all of Billy's records that didn't make Billy happy at all, but um, <laughs> small world.
3: <laughs> and Billy was a uh, draft pick of the New York Mets? Yeah. Ironically, yes. I, I have to ask you about 2015. I, I think the building block started when you signed David Wright in December 2012. That was, did you really have to twist his arm? Or was he really thinking of going somewhere else? Or was he, he really, did he really want to stay with the Mets?
4: No, I think he really wanted to stay with the Mets. And you know, we were faced at the time with possibility of losing him. And I remember talking to ownership about David Wright. And from a player standpoint, from a one-loss perspective, signing these big long-term contracts is really not a good idea.
3: Right.
4: But in but in David's case, it was also about the brand. You know, it was also about what the Mets represented. And I really didn't think at the time that we were we were in a position to lose David because of what he meant to the brand. Now the other thing that was really came out of that signing was David's sort of repeated endorsement of the direction that we had taken as an organization. You know, and, and I probably don't recall this, but I can remember constantly saying, you know, we wanna we wanna have payroll flexibility. Uh, we want to uh, be as competitive as we can without sacrificing the future, which was another way of saying, all right, we're not going to spend that much, but we really have a plan here to develop our own players and be competitive. And because David, well, he signed, but then he, he really went beyond that and endorsed that I, that whole idea. And I think it went a long way with the fans to give us some latitude you know, over the succeeding couple of years to get where we finally ended up in 2015. But I think generally speaking, from that time forward through 1516, 16, that people actually believed that we had a plan and they were somewhat patient mm-hmm. in seeing it uh, come to fruition. And it's interesting what, you know, little episodes like that can can uh, can mean. So David's endorsement, we traded for Zach Wheeler. I don't know if you remember. We traded Carlos Beltran for uh, Zach Wheeler. Nobody thought we were going to get anybody decent for, for Beltran. And suddenly we get this top prospect for the Giants. It was like, whoa, you know? So it's little things like that that create a, an impression on fans and, you know, in, in, in the aggregate, can kind of give them hope. The other thing that's important is once you state, you know, a, a direction and approach that you don't, you don't do something that undercuts that, you know, you have to, you have to be consistent. Doesn't mean you go out and do something, you know, on a one-off basis, you can always make exceptions, but you make too, too many exceptions. You don't have a rule. Right. So people have to recognize, okay, this is an exception rather than it's just chaos, lack of direction. So David was, you know, David was big.
3: Yeah. And you made that great trade with Ari Dickey and Josh Tolley to get Darno and Syndergaard. That was mm-hmm. a, a great trade. And I think Syndergaard was the only one who win a, a game in the 2015 world series. But I mean, obviously everybody in the Mets fan, wanted the Mets to win obviously, but uh, just to get there was just so surprising. It was just such a great season. That was just such a great, enjoyable season.
4: You know, uh, SNY did a show called five days in flushing or something like that. Um, which I thought was fantastic because it captured the the roller coaster ride of four or five days. And you know, sadly we didn't win the World Series. Because if you don't win the World Series, eh, you know, it's it's a factoid, but it's not it's not something it's not like 69 or 86. And I think we, we should have won that series actually, but nonetheless it was an exciting last two months of the season. Fantastic last two months.
3: Yeah, well, it's
2: interesting. I, Sorry, yeah. go, go ahead. I, I
3: think in that series, Familiar was uh, he was credited with three blown saves, but really wasn't his fault. When you have a, a ground ball, pit, a ground ball go through Murphy's legs, I even mean, that, that that happens, you know. And uh, the uh, a wild throw by Duda at the home plate. I mean, Familiar really was a hard luck guy in that series.
4: Well, yes, he was. Generally speaking, although he made a big mistake in Game One, um, uh, that home uh, run, run to yeah. Him the home run he gave up was on a hesitation pitch. Ah. And everybody had been telling him, pitching coach, the manager, do not throw the hesitation pitch. And largely that's because every time he threw the – again, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think so. Every time he threw the hesitation pitch, it was a fastball. Mm -hmm. So once you go into the hesitation, okay, maybe you throw them off, you know, with your mechanics, but they know what's coming. And that was just – I mean, they're just – that was, I think, one out with nobody on in the ninth inning, and uh, winning the first game is really important. It was the ninth inning, it was the first inning when uh, we didn't we didn't make a play on the leadoff man. He had inside the park home run. Mm-hmm. That ball should have been caught. Yeah, but to where it goes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know the the Royals. I mean, they had it was their second time there, right? The year before yeah. they they didn't win it. So the Mets make the series, which. Building that team, did you think that was the year you were going to do it, or did you think it was going to be the next year?
4: I didn't really, I didn't really think of it in those terms. I, you know, we got to the trade deadline, and you know, we made we had made a move, I think, before the deadline to get a relief pitcher and uh, Addison Russell, maybe another relief pitcher from uh, Arizona. You know, so we were close. Figured, you know, we needed to try to do something. And I remember talking to. Uh, ownership and saying, look, everybody thinks we need a hitter in order to be successful toward the end of this season. And I remember saying, if we don't get a hitter, if we get all the way to the World Series and we lose it, people will blame it on the fact that we didn't get a hitter. So we got a hitter. And, you know, it was partly to demonstrate our commitment to the season it wasn't even our first choice because he wasn't even an option, you know, for three or four days before the deadline, but it all worked out. And then we made some other trades that were actually just as uh, not just as important, but also very important for, you know, relief pitching, some extra infielders, you know, it was just, it was just a great season toward the end, but for the world series. I mean, the series against the Dodgers to get into the LCS was incredible. Oh, yes. and, uh, and we actually blew the Cubs completely apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had lost. I remember we were something like how many times we played the Cubs during the season, but we were like one and six, something right. like that. Somebody said, well, what do you think about the Cubs? And I said, you know, we only have to go five and 10 to win the series. <laughs> so <laughs> something like that. Four and nine, or whatever it was, but anyway, those were two great series. Got us to the World Series, and then the series itself was a little bit of a disappointment.
3: Sandy, we appreciate the uh, time—almost an hour. Is there anything left you want to tell the people of New York or or the Mets fans about? You know what's coming up, and how you feel the direction of the team is going.
4: Yes, I mean, look, I'm incredibly excited for 2022. I think it's going to be exciting to see some of the new players that we have and also how they blend with uh, some of our, you know, uh, holdover players. I know Steve Cohen's tremendously committed to the Mets, not only for 22, but beyond. So, you know, it's a great time to be a Mets fan. And I think Mets fans should have tremendous expectations over the next uh, year and years and years. So looking forward to it.
3: I'm sorry. I have one last question. I just want to actually more of a statement. Congratulations on the hiring of Elizabeth Ben as the oh. president of operations, baseball operations. What's her title? It's
4: she's director of uh, Major League operations. Director of
3: Major League. Thank you very much. Yes, a, a historic hire. Very qualified, and uh, you know, just a, a great direction the way the Mets are going.
4: Right. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's a great hire for us, and uh, a, a great statement for uh, women in baseball as well.
2: Absolutely. Sandy, we can't thank you enough for coming on with us. Again, Jeff said we, we, we respect your time, but I have to say, I don't want to let you go.
4: I don't know. I don't know who's going to listen to this full hour. It'll probably turn.
2: Oh, believe be me. We'll listen to it. I mean, yeah. we do it for ourselves if people listen to it. There you go. There you go. But we will. Sandy, thank you thank so much. Thank you very much. much, Sandy. Appreciate it. it.
4: Take care, guys.
2: Bye bye. And that, is Sandy Alderson. Jeff, why don't you be the first to say something? Because that was really terrific. I'm going to quote Leonard Hollywood
3: Aberman and goes, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy Alderson, president of New York Mets. I mean, how much better can you get? I mean, seriously, we're Met fans. I know this is not a Mets-centric show, but just to be able to speak to Sandy Alderson for about... 45 minutes, 50 minutes. It was just a, a pleasure. And we thank him for taking the time out of his, his busy schedule to just
2: talk to us. And you know, of course, Sandy Alderson, as we we know from the interview, and of course, anyone who can Google him put together an A's team that was quite a team. Sandy Alderson, yes, he's the current president of the Mets, and he was GM of the Mets for the 2015 World Series appearance. But Sandy Alderson has really done a lot in baseball. You know, as Met fans now, we're very lucky to have him. Now, Jeff, not to be outshone, because we now have on uh, an incredible guest in his own right, and that is Ray Sheehan. Ray Sheehan is Barbecue Buddha, which is champion, award-winning rubs and sauces, and of course, his new book is "Big Green Egg Basics from a Master Barbecue," and it is incredible. Ray, as you'll as you'll find out, you know from the interview, we definitely have a place in our hearts for Ray, and I think everybody after hearing Ray will also as well. Like I said, I of a nice guy, and now here's Ray Sheehan. baseball and barbecue listeners. We've decided. That we're going to introduce our next guest with a story. Gather around the campfire, maybe toast some marshmallows, and listen up as we tell you the story of how we met our next guest. You know, we all know that children ask many questions. Perhaps some of you have been asked the following as well. Are we rich? How do you answer that? Well, In my case, I answered it, and it was asked more than once, we're not rich in money, but we are rich in love and friendships. Well, the same might be said for podcasting. Most independent podcasters, which that's what we are, are not getting rich doing this. But what it has done is it has given us the opportunity to meet some incredible people and forge some wonderful relationships. Our guest today is one of those. In March of 2019, for our 30th, now you guys know we are way beyond that. It was our infancy, it was our 30th episode. Jeff and I decided we would make a trek to the Atlantic City Barbecue Expo. We had no idea what we were going to find but we said, Hey, let's give it a shot. So we did. When we got there, there was a booth set up with our next guest and something clicked. We met barbecue Buddha, Ray Sheehan, whether it's his award-winning barbecue Buddha sauces, his first book award-winning barbecue sauces and how to use them. The secret to next level smoking or His latest book, which we are thrilled to talk about today, Big Green Egg Basics from a master barbecuer. This man has done it right. And we are thrilled that we have had these years to have him on the show numerous times, to speak to him. I, I can't even say how many times. And just we value his friendship. So, Ray. We, we can't be more thrilled to welcome you to the show. So thank you for coming on. Welcome, Ray Sheehan, to Baseball and Barbecue.
0: Wow. I don't know how I could follow that up. I mean, I'm just so fortunate that I met you guys and uh, the friendship is real. And, and uh, I thank you for that, you know, in, in this world and in, in every facet of, you know, barbecue and and baseball uh, you're, and, and in life. You're lucky if you can call one or two people, your friends. And and I hit the jackpot when I met you guys. So thank you so much.
3: Welcome, Ray. And thank you. Uh, that's very, very nice. And Len was uh, very uh, eloquent in, in his story. And I'm sorry we don't have any more time to uh, go on with. <laughs> because uh,
2: He took up all allotment there. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, it's your turn. Go ahead with whatever small amount of time we have left. <laughs>
3: Ray, this is such a a great book, and it's for Big Green Egg Basics from a Master Barbecuer. Why write a book on just the Big Green Egg Basics? You know, there's so many different books out there
0: on the Big Green Egg, and I really wanted something kind of different, like uh, to really demystify that, you know, the the fact that a lot of people think, oh, they're so difficult to use. uh, When, in fact, if you have this guide, I mean, it really helps you get through it step by step. I cover everything on how to set up the big green egg, how to light the fire, how to control your temperatures, and some really great things that you can cook on it. but you know the, it, it's not as difficult as you as you know you may think up front and and the recipes really transpire great to any komodo style cooker uh not just the big green egg. We did focus on the big green egg here, but you know if you have any other kind of komodo style cooker the recipes would translate well and really on most grills the recipes would work well
3: and i got a follow up question which the answer is probably yes but uh, i know the big big green egg has several models i guess all these recipes would work on all the models
0: uh, for the most part i mean you're not going to fit a huge brisket in the in the minimax but the minimax is really more geared towards like camping and tailgating and it's you know you can move it around a lot easier but but the majority of them, yeah, you can absolutely you can high heat grill. You could slow and slow smoke. And in the book, I do list all the different
2: sizes and their dimensions and and all that. You know, because and I and I'm guess I'm I'm jumping ahead, but Big Green Egg is not sponsoring this. You you're doing them a favor, a big favor, <laughs> you <laughs> know, you're this... putting it. In... Go ahead.
0: Right. This this is this is definitely uh, this is an independent guide. Uh, I am not sponsored or endorsed by Big Green Egg. However, I do love their product, and I you know I use it and I stand behind it. And and you know what they do too. They're they're really good with their customer service. And um, I just you know I, I felt really good about writing a book about their product, regardless of having uh, you know an affiliation with them because I do not. So. But, uh, but highly recommend it highly recommended. And like I said, you can use these recipes on any Komodo-style grill.
3: And let, let me follow up with that. Uh, for those listeners who don't understand what a Kamado style grill is, could you explain what what difference between that is and, and a, another, any other type of barbecue?
0: The biggest difference is, um, you know, it, it basically has like a ceramic core inside. So it's got these thick walls and really great heat retention. And um, it looks like an egg; it's oval, and it's cooking on this type of um, equipment is really all about controlling the airflow. You know, so you have a uh, an air vent on the bottom with a screen, and then one on top, and uh, it's all about you know controlling that. If if you want to like move the temperature in a, in a a larger to to create a more like a hotter cook, you're going to open your bottom screen a little bit more, and if you want to just dial it in just a few degrees, then you're going to really adjust the top. But in the book, I go on to talk about, you know, uh, adjusting both vents at the same time, and it was just easier for me to learn that way. So that's how I teach the reader, and I have a um, kind of like a chart in there that's really just a guide. Um, it's not an exact thing, but it would depending on your your conditions, whether it's hot or cold or you know windy or rainy or whatever you know, you're going to adjust the vents accordingly together. So if you wanted to cook at 250, you might open both of them 10%, the top and the bottom, and, you know, a little bit more as you go up in the temperature scale. But really, it's just a guide to get the person acclimated to starting to, like, control their vents and really to dial in the temperature.
2: So you could translate that because just like there are many pellet grills, and they're all used a little differently. They all have their mechanisms in separate places or whatever. But if you can control a pellet grill, if you know how to work a pellet grill, you probably could go from a Traeger to a now all of a sudden I can't think of any names, but all the pellet <laughs> right. grills that are out right. there. Char- grills, yep. Yeah, and, and it yeah, exactly. And if you look up uh, online, you'll see that there are a lot of different Kamado grills. A Kamado grill, like you said, is a ceramic cooker. They're great, but there's, of course, the other brands, you know, Kamado Joe, Pit Boss. There's one called Char Griller, The Big Green Egg, of course. But the point being that people should be aware that this book is not just for The Big Green Egg. The recipes are fantastic. And and actually, okay, let's talk about that for a second. So, Ray, you've got a lot of great recipes in here. I'm always envious of people that can put these these recipes together because I'm always, even though I want to make different things, I always end up with the same, unless I have a recipe, I keep going to the same thing that I'm making. And you make all these recipes. So these recipes, to me, are things that could be made whether you have a big green egg or not. Is that true?
0: Uh, Yeah, actually, pretty much, you know, like... um, So first of all, the the recipes, even though it's big green egg basics, the recipes are anything but basic. They're really designed to inspire you to want to cook on your new, on your new equipment, you know, Mm -hmm. and covering all the bases. I mean, uh, I just wanted to throw out there. There's also like maintenance and how to care for your grill and, Mm -hmm. and uh, changing the gasket. And so there's much more to it, but, but the recipes are designed to make you really want to cook on it. Can you, you know, there's two baking chapters, one sweet and one savory. Can You could, you know, if if you couldn't get to your grill that day, you could do the recipes, you know, in your kitchen, home oven, if you wanted to at the same time and temperature, basically. Um, Or that if you didn't have an egg, you could translate the recipe to whatever grill uh, that you do have. They would work fine. You know that there are benefits to cooking on the egg. You know you can get it up really hot and do high heat searing, like you may not be able to do on some other grills. The heat retention in the Big Green Egg is going to be greater than other grills because of its ceramic core, and and your fuel consumption is going to be much more economical than on other grills. But so the short answer is yes. Can can I use these same recipes on other grills and cookers? Absolutely. Um, But there's a reason why we focused on like uh, famous Dave said, the Ferrari of uh, mm-hmm. your outdoor grills. So, but yeah, absolutely.
2: They do translate very well. Yeah. And it makes sense because th- I, I would assume that before the publisher says, okay, we're on board with this. They must know that there are a lot of big green eggs being sold. So there is definitely a need for this book. I think big green egg and, and, you know, would be crazy uh, to not be so appreciative that somebody, you know, thinks so highly of their product that they put out a book and, you know, labeled it, made it so nice and are guiding people on how to use it. So that's got to generate more sales for them. All in all, it's, a, it's just a great thing all around.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I did a big giveaway to celebrate the release of my book, and I had all these great companies like Gunter Wilhelm and Thermoworks and Barbecue Aid Tools and Grill Grade and Black Garlic Market, and of course my Barbecue Buddha sauces, Porter Road. I mean, we had probably um, eight or nine different companies do the giveaway, and I reached out to uh, Big Green Egg, and you know, I did really weren't not receptive. I' didn't, never really heard anything back about it but um, but so I called the promotion everything but the egg. <laughs> <It> was you, <laughs> you win oh and good charcoal company too. Um, we won you know I mean the, the, the person that won won all these great you know knives and thermometers and like everything that you would need to get started. and page Street, my publisher was generous enough to throw in a copy of my book. P.S., because, you know, you want everything but the egg for this uh, promotion. But um, it was really well received and we had lots of entries. And so it was
3: really cool. It was really fun. Nice. I I love the variety of recipes you have in in your book. I mean, you have your proteins, chicken, meat, steak, burgers, ribs, all the staples. You have seafood, salmon and and shrimp and oysters and and things like that. But there's also a couple of unusual runs that you don't usually see in a book like this. So you have key lime pie and you have salted chocolate chunk cookies. Oh, That's man, those <laughs> are my favorite. I'm sure. <laughs> so tell us about those and cooking those on a, on a big green egg. So I really wanted to include recipes that, like I said, would
0: inspire the reader or an, and add value to their experience with my book. Of course, you know, uh, we covered all the basic um, standards, I should say, of, you know, your Texas style brisket, and there's three different kinds of ribs, like, you know, beef and, you know, all these different types of ribs, and some really cool, you know, barbecue items. But then it's like, you know, uh, there's a nation of eggheads that love to cook on the big green egg every day, right? Like, or, or at least five times a week, let's say. So how do you inspire that person? How do I reach that person? And for me, the way that I reach them is through some different recipes. And and maybe the person that buys this book is not yet an egghead, but this will help them become one, <laughs> like a dedicated, mm-hmm. you know, egger where they want to cook on it all the time. So I took inspiration from, you know, so many different places. And one of them, let's say, was... There was a Middle Eastern restaurant that was close to my house and it closed down, but I really wanted to recreate those warm fragrant flavors on my grill. So I, you know, came up with a recipe for chicken shawarma, which you don't see in a lot of barbecue books. There's like a roasted eggplant and feta dip because uh, you know, I would do a lot of parties and catering and people were always looking for something different, but this dip you can is great for meal prepping and you can put it in a wrap, put it on a salad, put it over grilled chicken. There's different reasons why. There's also a great recipe to showcase the different techniques. So each chapter is organized by technique in the book. So you have your hot and fast searing and grilling, low and slow smoking, slow fire roasting. You have the two baking chapters that we mentioned. In within those chapters, there's also like you can fry on the big green egg. Now I don't do a lot of frying, but I wanted to showcase this recipe, my recipe for crab cakes, because they've been really popular uh, when I've done catering. And the recipe actually won first place in Delaware at uh, Coast Day in Lewis, Delaware, uh, against teams from Maryland and Delaware and all over. It won the, f- the, the the first prize. Um so I wanted to showcase that in there but it's also the technique of how we're cooking it on the egg. So mm. yes you can fry, yes you can sear, you can make smash burgers. You know, I wanted to offer as much value to the reader as possible and really give them all the tools that they would need to ensure success every time they fire up the big green egg. So the desserts, I love dessert. Whenever we would do barbecue competitions, we always have these chocolate chip cookies. And this is like those chocolate chip cookies, like on crack. The salted chocolate chunk cookies are like outrageous. And you can cook them on the egg. You can cook the key lime pie on the egg. The difference is I don't use any smoking wood. And I make sure that I clean out my cooker of any meat drippings, you know, in, in the charcoal before I cook on it when I'm so doing the baking.
2: I, I ca- we came on and, and I'm thinking, okay, great book for... We can use it for other things. No, you know what, Jeff, when we are done with Ray, please place an order for two big green eggs. Okay, (laughs) this this is going to cost us a lot of money, this book, but it'll be (laughs) worth it because Ray, you are a great salesman for the big green egg. I want one now and I want the large one, not the little one, I want the large one. All right. So I was
0: very fortunate, you know, with my barbecue sauces, you know, we've discussed this on your show before, and uh, I always appreciate you having me on, but, you know, we did win some pretty good awards for our uh, Memphis Mop barbecue sauce and our Kansas City barbecue sauce, and one of the biggest awards that I've won uh, f- was for the Sauce King NYC Grand Championship, and I won a big green egg, and that was like the highlight of my, you know, <laughs> of my uh, <laughs> sauce awards. I mean. I couldn't even believe it. And ever since then, it's just been, uh, you know, my favorite grill. It's really a a wonderful piece of equipment.
3: Right? What type of sauces are you using on these recipes?
0: So I created some different (laughs) sauces and I tweaked, you know, like there's different layers of flavor throughout the book that I've added. Whereas there's some really great rubs and there's some unique sauces, not just barbecue sauces, but. You know, there's a, a recipe for barbecue empanadas, and then there's like a great Chipotle aioli that goes with it. There's uh, a cherry a Chipotle sauce that goes with uh, like a, like a roast ham that you do in the egg. There's some really great barbecue sauces, so I really wanted to add value by including increasing the number of sauces and spices. Some I I really am disappointed when I open up a barbecue book and they're like, oh, use this brand barbecue sauce or use this brand rub. Because now it makes the reader have to go to the store or go to Amazon or go somewhere and purchase it. To me, I, I really I love teaching and I I love creating. And I so to me, I really love to be able to share that with the reader and give them a, a you know a recipe for a rub that they can use throughout the book, or maybe a few recipes. Like I have these hot wings in the book. They're just dry rub. So there's a recipe for a dry rub that mimics like a red hot sauce, but it's clearly dry rub. And then to cool it down, there's a barbecue ranch dressing that you make with it. So there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of value there. And if you're the reader, you can say, you know what, I'm going to focus on doing the egg. I'm going to, I'm going to buy the sauce this time, but next time I'm making the sauce. And it's all about building their confidence and giving them the tools necessary to succeed with this cooker.
3: And any particular brand of sauce that you recommend? Um, yes. Yeah, well, yes? you, better, you should ask. You better hit that softball, Ray. Yeah, man. That's a lob.
0: It's barbecue Buddha, all natural sauces and seasonings. Yeah. And where can we get that? Where can we get those, Ray? As long as we're it's, www.bbqbuddha.com. That's bbqbuddha.com.
1: <laughs>
0: that was beautiful. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. If you open up a book, you don't want to have to go to the store. And I mean, to right. just buy a sauce, I mean, you don't need a cookbook to tell you to go buy this special sauce or whatever you know, the fun is in the creation, at least for me, it is. And I think for most people that get cookbooks, that's the fun of it is finding a tip, a trick, something that you can do to improve your barbecue that maybe the next person doesn't know, you know, a different f- flavor profile or something, you know, it it's those little nuggets that separate you from the competition.
2: You know, Ray in here, the award-winning Maryland-style crab cakes—I've got to try those. But there's something I just recently discovered. My wife discovered it—a mushroom called—and I don't know if you've ever heard of it—a lion's mane mushroom.
0: Have yes, actually, it? I have. A friend of mine sent me some, and I grilled them up, and it—they t- taste. They're just like kind of like very steak-like, right? And very umami. You know,
2: they're really delicious. But they're also, there's a way to prepare them where they kind of taste like crab. What we were thinking as we were reading the book is that maybe we could somehow use those in the award-winning Maryland-style crab cakes in place of the crab. Yeah. That's so, a good idea. We're going to try it, and we'll, we'll oh. let you know how it goes.
0: I'm writing this down. Lion's Mane
2: crab cake. <laughs> <laughs> and they they they're very cool looking mushrooms too. They, uh, so, you know, they have the, it, it's, it looks like a lion's mane. I mean, it's got that soft. It's amazing how many different mushrooms there are. They're supposed to also, I think somebody said they taste like lobster, but I don't, where they have Mm. the, maybe they have the consistency of lobster or something, but I I didn't find that.
0: I love mushrooms and I love the umami flavor that they impart. And um you'll notice one of the recipes is a porcini mushroom crusted ribeye steak that we top with black garlic butter. And it just gives you a double shot of that umami flavor and really accentuates the, the
2: flavor of the meat. This is, I mean, <laughs> the pictures are beautiful. If if you have a big green egg or a kamado cooker, whatever you have, this you could basically make these recipes and this could be your whole This could be your repertoire and you'll be just you will be everyone's favorite cook on the block. Forget it. But your whole town. I mean, you got smoky barbecue meatloaf. Who doesn't love meatloaf? Smoked beef plate ribs. You know, a lot of people uh, will make, you know, the the typical pork ribs, but not as many people make beef ribs and beef ribs are incredible. Honey sriracha glazed chicken thighs. (laughs) Just unbelievable. Just some of the. Do not look at this cookbook. I'm going to put a warning label on this. Do not look at this cookbook if you are hungry. It's like going to the grocery store. Do not go to the grocery store hungry. I'm like ready to just I'm ready to eat these pages. That's that's
0: and, you know, all the all the photography, all the food was made. There's not like food styling. It's these are all this is all real food that we made over the course of a week. And I was lucky enough to work with uh, Ken Goodman from Ken Goodman Photography. Mm-hmm. He is uh, an amazing uh, photographer, world-class, and one of the kindest humans I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And it was just so much fun. It was a lot of work, but it was, it was really a great experience. And, you know, people think making a cookbook is uh, easy, and it's really a lot of work, but it's probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever been a part of
3: creating you got some great reviews for the book and you listed on, on the back uh, from Meathead Goblin to famous Dave Anderson Casey Webb and you even got Howard Johnson you know the ball player that's an amazing, that's an amazing get <laughs> that is an amazing get and i had some really a
0: couple special guys you know uh, help me out with that and um, very fortunate you know when when you get a cookbook deal and You know, it was news to me when I got my first book because I I had no idea. But did you know that you have to, as the author, you have to reach out to people to get endorsements for your book and, you know, get them a copy and make sure they get an advanced copy and, um, you know, see if they would, you know, write something about it or if they're interested, if they like it. And uh, that, you know, sometimes I'm very outgoing, but uh, sometimes I can be a little introverted and that puts me out of my comfort zone sometimes. But uh, I've met some really great people, some people I already knew and they were happy to do it. And then others like Howard and famous Dave were like the kindest, sweetest people that really just were wrote really thoughtful and amazing things about my book. And it really made me feel good because I worked so hard on it and uh, I'm very grateful to them.
2: Can you imagine? I, there's got to be a level of, cookbook author, and and hopefully you will get to that level, Ray, where they don't have to go after their own. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> like I got to you got to you got to get other people to pat you on the back, have somebody right. do right. that. It's, it know? puts
0: me it put me, you know, uh, yeah. it puts you kind of like, I don't know, out of like I said, it's out of your comfort zone, but it's a necessary thing because I feel like, you know, if if you love Meathead, And he's one of the most knowledgeable people on the subject of barbecue. I mean, so if you follow him and you see he writes an endorsement for this guy's book, you're going to say, you know what? I'll at least take a look at it. Uh, Let me see. What what does it have to offer me? Or if you love, you know, if Howard Johnson was your favorite ball player growing up and you're like, hey, you know what? He said some really nice things. Let me take a look at this book. It's not going to guarantee sales, but it's going to get people to say, huh, if this person believes in him let me take a look and let me check it out and, and see. And Howard's a big green egg guy. He loves mm-hmm. the big green egg. I mean, you know that, I mean, he's, you know, we talk, we end up talking uh, barbecue more than baseball <laughs> you know, with him and, and he's just like, he's into it. And, and how can you, how can you beat that? I mean, he's, it's like, he's not just passionate about baseball. He, he's passionate about barbecue as well. So reaching out to these people and uh, ironically Casey I used to work with many years ago in a restaurant in New Jersey and um, I was in the kitchen and he was up in the front of the house and and I hadn't talked to him in a while and I reached out and I was like hey you know I'm writing this cookbook and you know would you take a look at it and he's really busy you know filming this show and he's got other things in the works but he was kind enough to take a look at it and um that was really like it, it made my day when he said yes, because he, he also wrote something really cool. You know, the other thing is you don't know what people are going to write or how it's going to be used or how the editor is going to kind of, you know, only use a portion of it or use the whole thing or like that's not up to me. My thing is just making the contact, requesting it, showing them what I've worked on and uh, letting the chips fall where they may.
2: Ray, if you were a jerk, you know, then it would be more difficult, you know. So it it helps. It what goes or as they say, what goes around comes around, right? So yeah. karma. That that's another good thing. You put out a great book; it's worth it. It's it's you deserve yeah. everything oh. that 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 comes to you. And it and it's so funny because Jeff and I, when we have on some of these some of these players. We just had an interview with Steve Traxel. Steve Traxel, sixteen-year career in baseball, but what did Steve Traxel really want to talk about? He wanted to talk about barbecue. He wanted <laughs> to talk about how to. He had a turkey in his freezer, and he really wanted to know how to spatchcock it and do, uh, you know, cook it. It, it. it was amazing. And and Howard Johnson, I, I remember when we spoke to him a couple of times, and he he just really wanted to talk about his big green egg and and cooking and and it's funny because it goes the other way sometimes For, when we spoke to meathead he he comes on and he said he starts talking about baseball you know it's just, <laughs> right right who, and who expects that but i th- and that's why that's why um and this is not about us it's about you but that's why i always say baseball and barbecue is the perfect Reese's peanut butter cup they go really is. together yeah so that's yeah. all
3: the you book know. is called Big Green Egg Basics from Master Barbecue by Ray Sheehan. Ray, thank you so much for your time. Where could people pick up the book? Uh, they can pick up the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble,
0: Book Depository, Books a Million, anywhere books are sold. Um, and they can also get the book on my website. That's www.bbqbuddha.com, along with my sauces, my first book. You know, It's all right there, bbqbuddha.com.
2: And and one other thing, Jeff, before we wrap up, when we met Ray at uh, what was it? It was called uh, Monolith Monster Fest. Yes. Guru. Mm -hmm. Right. We said to Ray, we would not stop until he achieved world domination with his Mm -hmm. sauces. Now, he's getting closer, but he's not there yet. So our mission is not over. So we're still working on that, Ray world domination.
0: <laughs> you know, I I thought you guys were kidding when I when we when we you know joked about that, but you know, I'm starting to believe it and we can do it. We can <laughs> we're do it on together. <laughs> Baseball and barbecue, barbecue Buddha, world domination,
1: Hollywood, we can do it. <laughs> we
2: can do it. <laughs> Ray, we thank you so much for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. We value your friendship, so thank you. Thank you very much. Likewise. Ray thank you very
0: much. I really appreciate being on with you guys. You know, I, I never feel like I'm just on some show. I just feel like I'm talking to like, you know, two really great friends and, uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much.
3: And we thank
2: you, Ray. You're always great speaking to Ray, right? Len, you can call me Ray. Or you can call me Jay. <laughs> you could call me Ray Jay. Remember that? But you don't have to call me Johnson. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But Ray Sheehan, Ray, we thank you. We look forward to having you on again and again and again. And we know that the the barbecue world is much better uh, having you in it. Anything that you do is just is a big success. Again. That's Big Green Egg Basics from a master barbecuer. It's available on Amazon. It's available um, wherever you get your books. Highly recommend the book.
3: And I want everybody to know that you can give us a call at 516-855-8214. Leave a message. We'll put it on the show. Email us, bbq at gmail.com. Send us an email, and we'll read it on the show. Send us a comment on our Facebook page, Facebook, Baseball and BBQ. Tweet us. You know, you can tweet us at Baseball and BBQ, Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Rate and review us. And you know, Len, we're recording this prior to the start of the baseball season, but when people are listening to this,
2: the baseball season would have started. Thank goodness. Right. Thank goodness is right. You know, you know what, Jeff, <laughs> I was just listening to you give all the ways to contact us. Podcasting is not something you do if you're in the witness protection program because you could be contacted in a lot of different ways. But yes, baseball season, <laughs> that just shows you how my mind works. Baseball season is upon us. We had a very short spring training, but we had a very long lockout, and it's here, and hopefully everybody enjoys it. On day one, everybody's in the same position. Everybody's in first place. Len, do you want to give your preseason picks? Uh, Yes. My preseason picks is we're going to have some great baseball. The Mets are going to win it all, and... (laughs) and i wasn't expecting to give any picks so no jeff you're putting me on the spot if if you want to as the baseball savant if you would like to give your picks and go out on a limb go right ahead okay i I will yeah because this show we are presented by bet online so maybe so maybe someone will say oh i think i'll go bet on that Bet online.
3: (laughs) I wouldn't. I don't. Don't. Yeah. Don't. (laughs) I am not. (laughs) I am not the procrastinator. Here we go. (laughs) But I'm a very good guesser. And so the American League, I have the Blue Jays winning the East. I think they're going to have a monster year. The Chicago White Sox in essential, and in the West, the Houston Astros, believe it or not. And the three wild cards I have coming out of the American League. I have the Tampa Rays. I have the Minnesota Twins, and I have the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim.
2: Wait a minute, hold yes. on, Jeff.
3: I got a little hold inside on. info. I got a little what? inside info. Oh,
2: you you do? Yes. <laughs> you, you? I didn't hear the Yankees mentioned at all.
3: No, I, I look. The Yankees are going to hit a lot of home runs. They're going to score a lot of runs, but they're also going to give up a lot of runs. They have Garrett Cole, probably the best pitcher in the American League, and then who? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. I don't believe in their pitching.
2: So are you saying that the Yankees will not make the playoffs? I'm
3: saying that's, well, I told you I'm a very good guesser. Actually, I might not be a good guesser. But (laughs) in the National League, would you believe who I have it in in the National League East?
2: I'm going to guess you have the Mets. I just can't help
3: myself. That's right. (laughs) The Central, I have the Cardinals. Okay. In the West, believe it or not. It's gonna be the LA Dodgers. I know, I know it's it's it's, (laughs) wow. I'm going out all in there. I know (laughs) for the wild cards. I have the Braves, the Giants, and the
4: Philadelphia Phillies.
2: Wow. Okay. So the Giants that's not a reach since well, you know what?
3: But 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 uh, the did retire. So you know that's a big piece. Yes, he
2: did. He did, yes. But tell me why the Phillies? What's what's your reasoning on the Phillies?
3: Zach Wheeler is is a very good pitcher. Uh, Aaron mm-hmm. Ola might have a bounce back here. They have the hitting is Castellanos and the guy in the right field there, uh, Mr. Harper, and Muto, They have pretty good pretty good hitting. Their bullpen they got fortified <laughs> with Jerry's familiar, I don't think so, but I don't know. I just don't see the rest of the league being as good as the Phillies, I guess, as, as a wild card.
2: Doug's going to be a little upset with you not. Well, he even I, I don't even think Doug is uh, picking the Cubs to do anything this year, at least not to win to be in the postseason. But, you know,
3: my, uh, my inside info for the Angels are, you know, you know, who that is
2: Gary Looney. Yeah, he, he, he <laughs> gave you some inside info, huh? Well, he gave us inside info. So, you know, yeah. I think, uh, <laughs> well, or spring training, yeah. uh, you know what? I think the Angels will. I I think they'll do something. I really want to see what kind of year Otani's going to have because, as you know, when we spoke to Gary Looney, you can't expect him to have the same year as last year. That was that was otherworldly, right? Jeff, I I'm not going to argue with your picks because I'm not, I'm not sure about your National League East, but it'll be interesting to see that what the Phillies do and the Mets. We picked every year we picked the Mets and every year we're disappointed. I mean, already the Grom, you know what, Jeff, four weeks, at least for this, for this shoulder injury, then I, it's going to take another four weeks. Once he's able to, to, to bounce back from that. Mm -hmm. Scherzer already is uh, I know it's a hamstring, but Scherzer's Scherzer is all, he's 37 and we've got these shiny toys and I'm not sure how often we're going to get to play with them.
3: Well, I'd rather have the Grom in there for the last 20, his last 20 starts than his first 20 starts. Shurs is fine. He's going to be fine. 37 years old. That's okay. I mean, when did, you know, you ever have 50 is new 40, 60s, new 50. Well, in baseball, 30 is a new 40. I mean, you know, it, it, everything's it's old. Shurs is going to be just fine. And with Bassett, I think it's another good pickup. So I think the Mets have the pitching to be able to win the division. Hey, okay, my picks. These are my picks. Yeah, I get to pick them. My that's why they
2: call them my picks. (laughs) You can pick whoever you want. Okay, I I thank you for your picks. And uh, notice I did not make any. That's right, (laughs) Jeff. It's been a great episode. We've had Sandy Alderson. Ray Sheehan, two incredible guests. You make your incredible picks. But now I think it's time that we end the show. How are we going to end? Baseball always bring you home. By the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. We appreciate our listeners. Hope to see you soon.